On this exciting edition of Random Assignment, see how differently a D.C. charter school is addressing the mental health needs of kids compared to a school district right across the border in Maryland. Also, an update on the homeless encampments which remain on school grounds in Seattle and how the school district is insisting that they stay. And find out why the Chicago Teachers Union has told high school teachers not to go to school buildings this week, even though the conditions are apparently safe enough for Chicago's K-8 through teachers. Isn't that strange? All that and more, including an update on why Corey's livestream camera is better than mine, on this edition of Random Assignment. Welcome to Random Assignment, everybody. I'm Bob Bowden of Choice Media. There's another man on the line. His name is Corey DeAngelis. And Corey, uh, with whom do we say you are with these days? What group? With what group are you? Every, all of the groups. But my main affiliation <laughs> now is the National Director of Research at the American Federation for Children. I'm also still affiliated with uh, Reason, Cato, and EFI. Okay. Well, that's, a, that's a slew of affiliations. Now, you just showed something that said Chicago teachers stay home now what this really means you know we don't like to put a ton of words on a on a graphic but what it really means is the high school teachers stay home because well they've decided that the previous negotiation for the K through 8 teachers to show up in person well that was good enough for the K through 8 teachers to show up but now it's time for a new set of concessions on the part of the district uh so what's going on Corey? Uh, so, I mean, I, I first tweeted about this yesterday. My takeaway was just, here we go again. I mean, we've seen this nonstop over the past year. There, there seems to be a reopening date. And then all of a sudden, once we start inching towards the reopening debate, the teachers union does something like uh, releases an interpretive dance video to protest the reopening, or they just don't show up. Um, and here's the headline from the Chicago Tribune. Chicago Teachers Unions prepares a for a possible walkout Wednesday, which is today, over reopening plans. High school staffs would refuse to work in person, which is exactly what happened today. Um, there's a, other news outlets today reporting that the high school teachers did not return to work in person to protest a reopening date for students, which would be on this coming Monday on the 19th. Yeah, there's been local coverage about this. In fact, I think we have a video that sets it up from this morning. It talks about the press conference that the teachers union CTU held. So let's see the video. And the teachers union right now is holding a press conference and CTU President Jesse Sharkey says so far talks have been fairly productive, but no agreement yet. Negotiations will continue today. Still, some parents are saying enough is enough. By the numbers, it wasn't a huge demonstration yesterday in front of Chicago Teachers Union headquarters, but the message these parents brought with them was loud and clear. Stop delaying and start teaching. Parents are frustrated. Parents are upset. Students are upset. This has been a really, really long slog to get our kids the option of in-person. Nancy Griffin is a founder of the Chicago Parents Collective, a new group that's been working since the first of the year to get kids back into class. We know that, that, that safety is a big thing, and, we, and we've seen it work safely for elementary kids who have been back in school since early March. So we're now six weeks later, and we're, high school parents are being told that 
um, their kids might not go back on Monday. The teachers union wants to delay the opening of high school for a week as they continue to push for four issues. High school scheduling for students who are used to changing classes and teachers throughout the day. Accommodations for at-risk staff, a vaccination plan for students, and it wants to keep teachers remote if their students are. The union also points to rising COVID cases in the city as another reason to hold off bringing kids back on Monday. We thought we were out of the woods and now we're in another surge. This goes to show you that you have to remain hypervigilant and you have to ask for more and you have to be on the front lines. CPS says it's working on a vaccination plan, but no details have been released. Teachers are supposed to be back in class today to prepare for the return of students, but the union voted to stay remote. The union is mirroring the same actions it took when CPS wanted to bring younger kids back this winter. Last minute negotiations avoided a strike. We want to be back in school. You know, we, we, we view, the, I, I'll tell you, I personally view the bargaining that took place back in January and February as traumatic. I don't want to go through it again. It's one of the worst experiences in my life. These parents want to avoid all of this, too. Man, they want their kids back in school. And they, along with CPSA mitigation plans put in place by the district, so far have worked. And it's been a successful reopening of grades K through 8. We love our teachers, so the fact that we have to do things like this is really hard. Now, CTU President Jesse Sharkey also saying this morning that while negotiations are ongoing, the teachers union will keep teachers out of high school until there is at least a tentative agreement on the table for both of them uh, that both sides do agree on. He also says that proposals between the two were exchanged last night. But no deal, of course, has been reached. We're live this morning. I'm Eric Rung, WGN News. A couple of hot takes on this from me. Number one, they're lying. They're saying, oh, we really want to be back in class. They could go back in class right now. So they're just, this is clearly where you say one thing and do another. That's all this is. Everyone should know. In fact, I was disappointed the, rep the reporter said, uh, oh, well, the parents want the same thing as the teachers, meaning to be back, everyone to be back in class. That's actually not what the teachers really want. That's just what they're saying they want while they actually do something else. Number two, hot take number two. This is vaccines are fully available to teachers. They can all be vaccinated right now. They can be vaccinated and have, uh, we're told, uh, minimize uh, the risk, etc. And yet, now, I mean, remember before, this was the claim before that they needed to be prioritized for vaccines. And so... What are we learning now? Well, it doesn't matter that they're prioritized for vaccine. That's just, that just had nothing to do with anything. Number three is that this is another, this is really a strike. I mean, they, I guess they haven't used the word strike, but the management of an organization says you have to come to work. That's the rule to be, have this job. We are requiring you to come to work on this day. And they're just saying, no, they're just saying, no, we don't feel like it. So, and then <laughs> hot take number four, that lady represents, uh, you know, this group that formed just to get kids back in in school instruction that this is what it what it represents it's the epitome of incentives the incentives problem in traditional public school where you have to have grassroots parent groups show up to do what just to try to get the teachers to do the job they're being ordered by the district to do in other words uh, you need activism on the part of parents outside holding signs just to get the teachers to do their job. This is their job as defined by their employer. And they don't care, they're not doing it. And they're just like, well, we have the power. So we're just gonna elicit yet new concessions, even though we already went through this with a K through 12, 
the disease was the same disease. We basically laid the groundwork for what we claimed we wanted then. But now we get to do it all over again because we can just say a different age kids. I, I, I tweeted earlier today. I'm like, well, maybe the next thing is they could have 13 different, you know, uh, negotiations every time a new social issue pres presents itself to say oh now we just got that we negotiated for the kindergartners now let's have a new set of goodies we can get to agree to teach first grade then we'll get a new set of goodies we can get to agree to teach second grade <sighs> it's it's a constant stream of never-ending nonsense coming out of the chicago teachers unions i mean they just keep kicking the can down the road moving the goalpost out of the stadium Teachers have vaccination priorities. Now they're saying, well, maybe the kids need vaccinated as well. It's just always something else. And the conversation just keeps changing. And we didn't see this with any other sector in the economy. In the private sector, they all fought to get back to work. But then in the public school teachers union sector, they've still, in some places like Chicago, keep changing the conversation and using their their uh, bargaining position to and, and position of power to, to, to push for more money and to push for more staffing and to push for all these other things that they wanted even before the pandemic. It's a bunch of BS and all the families, or a lot of the families at least, are seeing this. And hopefully they'll never forget what the teachers unions have done to millions and millions of children all across the country in this past year. Some schools are, are, are reopening, but even in, even in those places, hopefully those families never forget the powerlessness that they felt over the past year where a school building remained closed because of political interests and power dynamics. And meanwhile, they were left scrambling, getting emails at midnight the night before they were supposed to return to school saying, well, you got to look for something else. Meanwhile, the, the, the private schools were more than happy to open their doors for business and, and Advantage families were more likely to be able to access alternatives. Uh, so, I mean, hopefully no one forgets these inequities that were created from, by the public school monopoly in so many places. And uh, look, hopefully with that, people continue to push for school choice policies, which there's a ton of movement in the states today and just over the past couple of months, uh, tons of states, 30 states at least, have introduced bills to fund students instead of systems. And it, it, it's almost because the teachers unions have overplayed their hand here. Chicago thinks that uh, they're so powerful over there that they're going to continue doing this. But there was one bill in Illinois to change the school code to uh, if your school doesn't reopen for in-person instruction for all students, let families take their money elsewhere. Obviously, it didn't get very far in, in Chicago, but hopefully there's more of this ground groundswell of momentum uh, behind parents, even in places like Chicago, uh, to push back. And hopefully this, this fight continues in, in the future to where families push for their children's education resources. Yes, and, the, and before we leave Illinois in the same place, did you get the link I sent about uh, the Illinois supporters rally story? Supporters rally to in, save the Invest in Kids tax credit scholarship program. This because the Governor Pritzker uh, of, of Illinois is proposing cutting it in half, basically, from a 75% to a 40% credit for this tax credit scholarship program, cutting the incentive, in other words, in half, I guess would be the more accurate way to put it. But this is, um, you know, at the same place that we're seeing, yeah, there you go, same place that we're seeing um, the teachers in Chicago say, we don't feel like showing up for uh, high school kids, mm -hmm. even though 
all the measures are good enough for K through eight kids and vaccines are fully available uh, in the same state. We now have the governor saying, let's reduce the incentive for people to donate to a tax credit scholarship group. That would be an alternative for these parents who are desperate. It's um, so, yes, uh, as we've said before on this program a few many times, it's this is a lot of reason why we're seeing 2021 become the year of school choice. Because we want to go back to work, though, Bob. We want to go back to work. We really want to be the, there. That's the good PR. Um, the PR no, you move wanna, is you no, say you, you want to work. You want to go to freaking Puerto Rico and vacation on the beach in person. You do it. <laughs> so they, they're doing all these other things. They want to go shop at the grocery store, so they go shop at the grocery store. That's yes. what they do. They want to go to vacation in Puerto Rico, so they do it. They want to send their own kids to in-person instruction in private schools. They do it. Uh, they don't want to return to work in person for a lot of different reasons and they're not doing it and they're using that position. And even if they did want to, and they truly wanted to, we can't look overlook the fact that they're using their position of power to lobby for more things by making parents feel the pain uh, because parents are the ones really uh, getting, getting the short end of the stick when it comes to all of these fights between the teachers unions and the school districts and pa parents shouldn't have to be the ones feeling the pain. If, if Walmart employees go on strike, Walmart feels the pain of that decision and the employees feel some of the pain as well. When public school employees go on strike and you don't have an exit option, parents are the ones that are getting the short end of the stick. And that whole feedback mechanism just isn't there when it comes to a system that gets the money no matter what. And I'll so if we had school else. choice, we would fix all that. We would fix that weird incentive structure that we have baked into the school system. We often, too, make a valid distinction. The distinction is often valid to say, well, don't confuse the teacher union leadership with actual rank and file teachers. There are plenty of teachers that disagree. You know what I say to the teachers of Chicago? Quit the union and show up to work. You have the, you have the Janus decision now. You don't have to be a union member anymore. You can right now go and show up at your school or tomorrow maybe show up at your school, no matter what the union says, ignore what the union says and do it anyway. So I would call on teachers basically now, this is your call. There's no more there's no more requirement to pay the union money, uh, et cetera. You can fully divest yourself from the CTU union and show up to work. And that's what I call on any well-meaning teacher to do in Chicago. That's a totally good point. Um, but I also want to point out that, you know, you can't really blame a lot of them, right? Any normal person looking at the costs and benefits in front of them will say, look, I don't have to commute. I can eliminate or even further reduce any risk of the virus that's already extremely low and near zero. I can um, forego having to provide childcare services, something that I might have not liked doing all that much anyway. And I can retain the same job security and benefits in terms of pay and, and, and other benefits as well that come along with the job. And, and so like just in that, in that system that, that, that they're in, I think that a lot of them are just making rational decisions to push to keep schools closed for a lot of students. And they can say it's based on all of these all these things. And it and it might, you know, um, it might be a rational decision to do so. It's just the thing is they wouldn't make that same decision in a different system where customers could leave. Yeah, well, and, you're uh, more sympathetic than I am, I guess, maybe. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, whatever. So that's that's the that's the case. That's where we are in Illinois right now. Meanwhile, just. Uh, 
there's just across the border in, in bordering state Indiana, they're having uh, school choice uh, debates about this eligibility expansion of school choice. So it's a it's a very different story. But we have that video, too, if you want to play that from Indiana. Public school leaders all across the state of Indiana now are lining up against a plan to expand the voucher program statewide. Yes, yeah, some Indiana lawmakers want more middle-income families to have access to these school vouchers. Our Dustin Grove talked with supporters who say Indiana needs this expansion and educators who argue the math just doesn't add up. I think we need to focus on what's best for kids and kind of forget who's delivering those services. The whole debate over school vouchers is heating up again. House Bill 1005. As lawmakers like Robert Boehning consider giving the state's school choice program one of the biggest boosts in years. Right now, a family of four who makes about $90,000 a year is eligible for a voucher. That's state tuition help for private school tuition. A House proposal would expand that help, offering it to families earning up to $140,000 a year. The Senate version, about $110,000. Either way, some public school leaders say it's too much. That is a huge increase, and these are not increases that are suggested to help low-income families. These are helping the upper-middle-class families who many argue could afford that private school tuition on their own. Greenwood Middle School Assistant Principal Jennifer Brinker says it's taking away too much money from public schools that teach 90% of Indiana's kids. Simply put, she says it's not fair. Especially when you consider that these private schools don't have to play by the same rules that public education does. But Bob Boehning insists the money should follow the student. Parents know best what's best for their kids and government shouldn't say this one-size-fits-all model is the only model that's available. The overall impact of this is about 30 million dollars. Meanwhile, lawmakers continue negotiations and the deadline to pass the state budget is about two weeks away. So there you have, there you have a case of wanting to increase eligibility for school choice. Um, just shows, I guess, a well, tale of two perspectives. It's yeah, it's moving its way. It's it already passed one chamber, I want to say, uh, ten ten oh five, the um, bill out there in Indiana. And look, every family should have access to their children's education dollars. Every family uh, is is guaranteed a an a K through twelve education through the tax system. They should get their children's tax dollars to 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 take to a public school if they want, or a private school, or a homeschool option. Um, and this this bill, it is an expansion, but I don't think it's that huge of an expansion in Indiana. It should be a universal program. It should be available to everybody. But look, I mean, look at the focus of the people on on that segment on the system and 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 needing to protect the monopoly at all costs. Oh, this isn't fair. this is this is going to take a lot of money from the public schools. It doesn't belong to the public schools. The money belongs to the family. Once people start to wrap their head around that, I think uh, we'll finally get some positive movement or even more positive movement on the school choice front uh, going forward. It's, it's, it's always the other side saying that the money belongs to the building and then our side saying, well, you know, we could take, people should be able to take the money to your building, but the whole system exists to serve the child, not the other way around. The money belongs Don't you love to the, the logic too of like, and this is taking, you know, after all, the traditional public schools serve 90% yeah, of, of the kids. <laughs> what they don't add is that this is because money is coercively taken from taxpayers. And then you have school choice programs, which are artificially limited in enrollment eligibility. So 
they're already, they're by definition going to have the majority of kids going. It's not that the majority chose the public schools. It's that the system is designed so that the majority have to go to the public schools, whether they like it or not. And then they use that percentage as if that's some sort of endorsement or some sort of deserving, you know, evidence of, of, of deserving funding. 100% of prisoners go to prison. Well, yeah, I mean, because they, they have to go there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but the, like, yeah, they use one of their main talking points is, you know, these are our public schools where 90% of families choose to send their children. And then they say, well, when families choose, have the, the right to choose, then it's going to destroy our public schools. Well, which one is it? Are families really, 90% really choosing those schools or... Is it only that they're going there because they don't have an, a legitimate exit option? They understand that uh, when families are given the choice that there's there would be a mass exodus from the public school system. And the thing is, the focus shouldn't be on protecting that system. The focus should be on catering to the needs of individual families. Whatever, if that's a public school, great. But if not, we shouldn't trap them in a system for decades, uh, which could really harm their children's life prospects. And then look, we're only trapping certain uh, populations in the system, right? The least advantaged are the most likely to be able to, to not have an exit option in the current system. Rich families already have forms of school choice where they can afford to send their children to the best public schools or they can afford to pull their kids out and pay twice once through the property tax system and again for private school tuition and fees. Funding students directly would allow for more equity and allow more families to have those options. So look, this whole, yeah, this whole debate is about whether certain populations should have choice or not. It's an interesting thing to think about. If moving forward, let's say there's a new strain of coronavirus and then some sort of new lockdowns come because, I don't know, they decide that that's needed or something. You, you can imagine a scenario where the it's really a blue state, red state divide. I don't mean to get too political here, but there certainly is. I mean, you have proven and others have proven that there's a huge political factor to how we're deciding this public health policy. And so what if there's a scenario where basically it becomes common knowledge that blue, blue state schools are closed and red state schools are open? What does that do for disadvantaged populations that don't have the access to private schools if you're in a blue state? What does that do to further uh, widen the income differentials we see in the U.S.? So what is that? How does that affect people? I mean, which states are people moving to and which ones are they moving away from? Well, I think we know that they're in Florida and <laughs> Texas and Arizona are having huge influx of people. OK, all the time. And those schools are much more open than the schools from states. People are leaving. Yeah, I don't think the mainstream media talks about this very much. Well, you can't argue with the population trends. They're obvious. You all reports it. I mean, well, and if you look at the county level, too, all of the studies that have looked at this uh, and I've done a couple of them with Christos McCready's from MIT. The county level, the more uh, blue your area is, as far as voters in the 2016 election, the more likely your schools are to be fully remote, less likely that they are to be in person. And this isn't just me. There's tons of researchers that have found this trend as well. So there is a political aspect towards reopening, even aside from union influence. Like separately, they both predict uh, reopening decisions, union influence and political partisanship, much more than the incidence of the virus in, in the location as measured by cases or deaths or hospitalizations per capita. 
And the takeaway there is that this has been a lot more to do with politics and power dynamics than about safety and the needs of millions of families. Another thing that's um, not talked about much as well is looking at the states that are funding students instead of systems. So I, I said that there have been 30 bills introduced this year, and it's been blue states and red states. But when we're looking at how the votes actually turn out, it's been red states that are much more likely to get things done. I have, I don't, there aren't any majority blue legislatures that have passed uh, a school choice bill out of a chamber this year. I mean, you look at West Virginia just passed the most expansive, signed it into law, education savings account program in the country. Kentucky got it done and overrode the veto by Andy Bashir. Uh, just got enough votes to override that veto. We're seeing movement today in states like Missouri. They already passed a bill for an education savings account out of a chamber and out of the House. Just today, they passed uh, a bill to for an education savings account out of their Senate Education Committee. And now it's going to the full Senate. You have North Carolina. This might, you know, uh, you have Governor Roy Cooper, so who knows what's going to happen with it. But they just had a bill to expand their Opportunity Scholarship Program. Uh, just passed, I want to say yesterday or two days ago, the Equity and Opportunity Act, 69 to 49 out of their house. Um, it's, it goes to the Senate now in North Carolina. Arkansas today have, have, has a bill, Senate Bill 680, just passed on a voice vote uh, out of their Senate Revenue and Tax Committee to create a tax credit scholarship program. Uh, that'll go to the full Senate next. It's expected to pass the full Senate. So I just, I mean, looking at all these states, when you look at the states that are actually getting things done, not just introducing the bills, it tends to be the red states that are much. That doesn't mean that the Democrats never vote for school choice bills. Um, well, not individual sometimes Democrats. It, well, some, there are, yes. I mean, in other words, it, 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 it can be that individual Democrats do vote. That's true. But uh, a, f a friend of mine, uh, former Congressman Dick Zimmer, said this a few years ago, and I think it's still true, which is that uh, there, there may ne never have been a majority Democrat legislature that voted for a private school choice program. Now, charter school programs, yes, there have been majority Democrat legislators, legislatures that have voted for charter school programs. But for a private school choice program, I'm not sure, it, you, you said this year? I'm not sure ever, Corey. <laughs> I invite the viewers to correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know of anyway a single instance in American history where a majority Democrat uh, legislature, state legislature, voted for a private school choice program. Oof. Yeah, I, I don't know the history as well as you do, Bob, but I think you might be right, and I can't come up with an example, so uh, you must be right. I mean, um, someone may, someone, I, there's may, maybe one I don't know of. I don't know. I, I don't know of one. I'll put it that way, and I, I, I've, I've, I've looked at this for a while, so we'll see. We'll see Did if I'm wrong, but that's my, that's my, uh, I'm going to stand by that until proven otherwise. You see the latest from Los Angeles Unified School District. They, uh, Los Angeles Times just wrote about this. I think it was their editorial board that Los Angeles Unified School District is planning to reopen some of the schools. And, you know, we can just talk about what, what it means to actually reopen. But um, they, for K through 12, K through eight students, they wrote about how they'll spend more time in childcare settings than in actual class. And my initial knee-jerk reaction was, well, okay, it's safe enough for childcare, but not safe enough for learning. 
what they're doing is because the teachers uh, in, in large part aren't providing full-time in-person instruction to re reduce their childcare service uh, requirements, they're getting uh, childcare uh, service providers from the private sectors to come in and provide that in-person instruction. So, which again, begs the question, if, it, if it's safe enough for this class of workers in the childcare private sector, why isn't it safe enough for the teachers to do so? And again, I think this is just another great example to show that this really has more to, to do with incentives and power dynamics than it has to do with actual concerns about safety. If, if all of these other businesses and employees and other sectors are able to do the same thing for the same set of students, why isn't it okay for the public school sector? And I think the thing is that, well, they get your money through the property tax system regardless. Uh, so of course they're going to push for this. And I think this is just more of the same of what we've been seeing all throughout the past year. And some of, some of the quotes from this article is that uh, district and community-based providers, including nonprofits, city agencies, and the district itself, are hiring thousands of workers to supply that care, child care, at rates from around 14 an hour to 30 or more. Um, California districts so far have split over the six feet rule, but for teachers to return at six feet and not three, other workers had to fill in the gaps with extended care since only about half the students can be in class at a time. I like how they also point out that, um, yeah, these workers, the childcare workers, will spend roughly twice as many hours per week face-to-face -face with students as district teachers do. And as, as with the majority earning between 15 and 18 an hour, Los Angeles Unified uh, School District's childcare providers make far less than the educators whose labor they replace. It's a continuation of what we've seen throughout the pandemic with lower paid childcare replacing higher paid educational work, said Mary Whitebook, founder and co-director of the Center for the Study of Childcare and Employment. And they also pointed out, yeah, just a more, just more of this uh, divergence in the Los Angeles Times article. Why is it okay for them, but not for the people who get paid either way? Well, it's yeah, because if you, if you have a powerful union behind you, the disease will be much more dangerous. So if you don't have a powerful union behind you, ah, well, then the disease isn't a problem. So daycare workers or whatever show up, too bad, it's fine. We'll send the kids, everything's fine. Or private school, fine. You know, well, maybe, school, fine. It's, maybe it's the learning itself, Bob. Maybe it's the learning ignites the transmission of the virus. And so you better not be learning if you're in person with another person and because that'll create so many problems uh, with the virus. I mean, look, we, we, we've seen this all through the past year where they were saying that they couldn't open the schools for in-person instruction, but then they were charging families up to $400 a week for in-person childcare services because the YMCA workers were coming. And it's the same kind of thing that we saw in other parts of the country over the past year. And then, all of the hypocrisy with the union leaders go, uh, doing in-person things, but then railing against reopening for their members.
Yeah. I was going to say, the noted epidemiologist Randy Weingarten uh, said it was either early this week or late last week. I don't know if you saw this, Corey, that they had changed their guidance on whether the three foot versus six foot rule was OK. That I guess the all the AFT scientists in their lab got together and did some experiments or something with maybe some beakers and Petri dishes and concluded that, well, I guess after all this new three foot guidance from the CDC would be OK, which they had, you know, opposed. Why was it? Because of political pushback and their and yeah. parent pushback, et cetera. Everyone said, no, we're not having this. So their original resistance to the three foot CDC guidance has now been. Well, well and, and they'll, I mean, and they'll just, I mean, they'll probably just change their tune. They'll just say, yeah, we're okay with that. But then when it really gets down to the bargaining table, they'll, they'll still push back against reopening schools. So yeah, it seems yes. to be a way to save face in the eye of the public. Um, yeah, because because of all the initial blowback of, well, the science says it was okay to do three feet, not six feet. Why are you pushing back with no evidence to the contrary? And yeah, it wasn't a good look. Brandy Weingarten has been getting a lot of pushback on her Twitter account. And I think we talked about this last week that so many things are blowing up in her face. But, you know, from her continually, continuously trying to repeat the lie that they've been pushing as hard as possible to... Uh, reopened oh. since last year, since last April for, for yeah. a, a, a year now. Everybody knew that was nonsense. Um, That's why there are a dozen lawsuits from the AFT to keep schools closed. They're pushing so hard to open schools, but in Rhode Island, in uh, in in New York, in a bunch of places, there have been these lawsuits to keep schools closed from the union specifically. Uh, L.A., a bunch of places. I made a list of them on some tweets. All just literally lawsuits. No, it's one thing. It's one thing just to go behind the scenes in like some sort of negotiation in a back room and say like, oh, here's what we're going to demand and etc. This is this is the lawsuit. That's even going. That's making it absolutely clear you want schools closed while you still PR, you know, message that you want schools open. So it's yeah, it's you know. Well, then you had Randy Weingarten. You don't have to pay getting, very hard attention to see how my big of a lie that is. You had the Randy Weingarten AFT president um, posting all over so social media selfies in like this restaurant with people without masks uh, in, I don't know what state it was because she was in so many states a couple of weeks ago, just traveling all over the place for all these meetings to which, yeah, we talked about this last week, but my response was, you know, you couldn't meet virtually, you know, it's safe enough for you to travel in person and meet with people in person but it's not safe enough to return to work in person and, and teach children. I think, yeah, uh, Rory Cooper had the best response to her tweet with the, everybody thought it was a private jet, but it, it really wasn't a, a super expensive jet or anything, but it was a small jet that, that she was on. I think Rory, Rory Cooper said something along the lines of, well, if you put five uh, school-aged children in there, she, she won't let any teachers step foot in that plane. Uh, but yeah, this, there's been a lot of fun going on on social media with randy because oh, zoom and classes then the, are good enough for your kids but they're not good enough for the meetings i want to have i'm randy weingarten i, I still, need in-person meetings i still don't understand the whole jewish statement of, you know she is a jew jewish person herself but the question about re, you know pushback about reopening and then her response was to say something about the what is what was the quote about like the master class or something or like she wasn't it was it was a copy really paste toned. of woke ideology regarding income differentials that had nothing to do. It, in fact, contradicted the real point of what she was trying to say. She was actually trying to make it look like if you wanted schools to reopen, then you were against 
the lower classes having mobility. And it's like, really, that's it. It just it was uh, that put it this way. We know why that point wasn't repeated. We know why that yeah. one was said only once by Randy yeah. and never again. Oops. We know why she didn't go on Twitter and basically double down on that one. It's so. like it's like she mixed up her anti-school choice talking points with her anti-reopening talking points. Like exactly. A school choice talking point would be you benefited from public education. Now you're not letting people have that same benefit, which is a BS talking point anyway, because school choice supporters would are still want public schools to be an option on the table. You should be able to check, choose public or private, whatever's best. But she got that mixed up with a point about reopening, and it kind of blew up in her face because she was trying to say that um, yeah. groups of people were saying not to – to, to reopen schools because they're not trying to have options for in, for public education that they benefited. I mean, it just didn't make any sense at all. It's like, yeah, well, actually, yeah, they benefited from public education. If, that, if that's what you want to go with, them arguing to reopen is saying that they should, that other people should have that same kind of benefit too. And it's completely opposite of the argument that she was trying to make. And it was just mixed. It was a mix up and it didn't really work out well for her. <laughs> I wanted to also throw out on, on today's program a little bit of a disparity and get your thoughts on this, uh, Corey, of a, a kind of n not quite two schools in the same city, but one in Mar one one uh, uh, county in Maryland and, and one school in D.C. Just it's, it's just an anecdote, but just to give people a sense of the difference between how schools proceed when they have to attract families to exist versus when they are guaranteed families. So um, there's a link that I sent you, um, and let me pull it up here. It's the Maryland link, New Montgomery County Task Force. It's gonna address what to do, basically to, it says to assess mental health needs. And it's about eliminating school resource officers from the Montgomery County, Maryland public schools. Now, for those who don't know, school resource officers, that's the term that's used to mean police in the schools. And, you know, back back when there were a number of tragic school shootings, people said we can't arm the teachers. That would be ridiculous. And even though Betsy DeVos had said that could be an option, she wasn't, you know, saying you should do it or any school should do it. She was, but that became this political blowback where the establishment said, no, it should be police officers with guns in schools to detail these, to potentially handle the next school shooter tragedy. It should be police officers in the schools, not armed teachers. Well, then that all reversed, and now basically what uh, the movement says is to get rid of school resource officers, which means get rid of police in the schools. And you have these leaders saying, all right, now what? And this is their call, the it's called the post-SRO, school resource officer conversation. What do we do now for school safety? So what is this? It's a classic top-down bureaucratic answer. Now let's form a task force and we're going to have these people at the top to have these big important meetings because they're all experts and geniuses and they're, you know, they're the uh, essentially overseers of what the little people need to do and they should get together, <clears throat> excuse me, and figure out what to do about school safety because we know we don't want the police no matter what. So we, but what we have, to, maybe there should be some sort of provision for some sort of uh, concern of what happens if you get a very unruly kid or a number of unruly kids, what do we do then? So they're having this conversation with elite task force members to then <laughs> tell every school in the county what to do. Okay, so that, that's their approach to, to either mental health or possible violence within a school. Task force of elite people. 
I wanted to contrast that with what a DC charter school, the Maya Angelou Charter School in DC is doing. And I would argue this is also a way to address address potential uh, mental health issues and also to keep kids engaged. Let's contrast that Maryland traditional public school approach with what this DC charter school is doing. Don't act confused when it's time to work. Yup, those are burpees. Food access activist and physical trainer Jim Jones is changing the game for students at Maya Angelou Charter School. He's partnered with the school's business academy to teach students what he's learned along his entrepreneurial journey. If you have a talent or you have a skill set and you've reached a certain level of success, I feel like it's our job to reach back and pull others. Of course here it looks like an intense workout, and it is, but it's also a lesson on how fitness can be monetized. The curriculum now has got to be fun it's got to be engaging so i come in um we do a workout from do a virtual workout and i each week i bring a different entrepreneur in just to tell about just to give the keys success just to give the secrets and how they made it so these these students can see like wow i can use this i can use the information from this class and i can apply this to my life tomorrow business academy teacher leonard howard says in the last month he's seen his students more engaged it gives students a uh, a different outlook on career choices that they can make outside of uh normal careers if you will and it exposes them to entrepreneurs that look like them scrolling on apps is at an all-time high and since it's probably not going to change jones shares lessons with the students on how to maximize digital opportunities social media is a tool we're in the information age what social media has done is it as we both know it's allowed us to remove the middleman we just wanted to let them know, like, hey, don't just be on here scrolling all day. Watch what you post. If you have a brand, if you have a passion, show that within your social media. Show your hard work and people will invest in you and brands will invest in you and you can get your dreams off the ground through social media. Charter schools encourage innovative teaching practices. As students will be heading back to the classroom in full soon, Howard says in these unusual educational times, it's imperative to keep them engaged. Well, the school also has a bike riding program that's really cool. It's called Ride Through It. They provide bicycles for the students, and they ride around trails in the city and show them different parts that they may not otherwise visit. Jones and Howard says that both the students are enjoying the addition to the curriculum. And, Tony, I think this is a really cool thing. All three of us were talking during our interviews, and we were saying we wish we would have had something like this when we were coming through school. How much healthier is this charter? Some may say this is a false comparison that I'm like bringing in a completely unrelated things. How much healthier is it to see kids get excited about entrepreneurialism, to actually working out and exercising a bike program where they're going around and exercising and at the same time seeing other parts of the city and maybe learning about American history, going through D.C.? Perchance, I don't know. How much healthier and exciting would that sound to get kids excited about entrepreneurialism and also working out, which also helps everybody, everybody's attitude and mental health, right? Compared to what Maryland is doing, <laughs> let's get a top-down elite task force to meet and, deci and decide uh, what all, every school, you know, is going to be forced to do because we've said so. Anyway, to me, I thought they I thought they pertain. I thought they have something to do with each other. What do you think? Corey? Well, yeah, it seems like one approach is a top down. The other is a bottom up approach that some the charter school approach is more organic and uh, plays on the interests of the students and things that actually matter. Whereas uh, a top down, you know, central planning approach doesn't seem like it's going to work for something like mental health. Yeah, I mean, when has it? I mean, the, the look at the school, look at so many of these traditional public schools over the past 20 years where that's been what's 
tried. So they, they, they tweak this and that, and they, they move in the school resource officers, they move out the school resource officers, they take a certain plan and they change the name of it and tweak it a little bit, and, but it's, now it's a new plan because it's called this other thing, and it's mostly, you know, 95% the same as the last plan, but everyone gets in these meetings, school board meetings, and they pass this thing and have some experts talk and say how great it'll be, then that fails too, then they do it all over again. I mean, this goes on for years like a merry-go-round. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's a impossible problem to solve. I think the only way to solve it is to allow people to sort by voting with their feet to the best institution that uh, can meet their needs. I mean, my latest uh, study with um, Angela Dills, published in School Effectiveness and School Improvement, found that more school choice was associated with better better mental health for students. All right. Well, uh, before in our remaining time, I don't know. I, I have one other thing I wanted to do, which is kind of an update. Last week uh, on the show, Random Assignment, we talked about the Seattle public schools and how they were allowing homeless encampments on the school grounds. Uh, what we've seen since then is the local news media picking up this story more. And so I wanted to offer this as an update on the Seattle homeless encampments on school grounds. It makes me feel sad. Sad and depressed. Our leadership on the part of the city. With parents coming in the morning before kids would come to the park and do a sweep of the park and see if there's any needles that they needed to pick up before any kids got here. How is that okay? How do we get to a place where we think that's normal? Some public school students returning to classes now have homeless encampments right next to their buildings. And Seattle's KTTH radio talk show host Jason Rance obtained school district emails. Here's what they reveal. School board members demanded Seattle not sweep homeless encampments from schools. Rance took pictures of trash and syringes on the ground around the camps, highlighting the dangerous conditions. Parents have been calling on the school district for months to have the tents removed from their locations near an elementary school and a middle school. But so far, nothing has been done. Joining me now, Jason Rance. Jason, thanks for being on the program. So. If it's not the city's jurisdiction, whose is it? Well, it's supposedly up to the Seattle Public School District, and that's part of the problem. As you mentioned, the school board is working both behind the scenes and now publicly saying we do not support any removal of any of the encampments, whether they're on campus or adjacent to campus. I found some of these emails that were sent to me between board uh, president Chandra Hampson and director Zachary DeWolf flatly saying, look, we'd like some assistance in dealing with this, but we don't want you to remove any of the encampments. A public statement by both of them came out calling them decidedly inhumane. They say we demand sweeps never be performed on school grounds, and they put it in cash never so obviously they're serious about it the, the problem is we've got a bunch of kids right now who are returning into the classroom and these are special education kids coming up in the next less than two weeks mm. you have the remainder of the stool, school students coming in on uh, sort of a temporary remote learning hybrid so a lot more kids are coming in I went to Meany Middle School on Capitol Hill this is really close to the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone and I thought I was being careful. I stepped on a syringe. Now, luckily, there wasn't a needle oh, no. attached to it. But imagine mm. if a kid is going there. And just a, a little correction. I said the local news when I introduced this clip. It, obviously, mm. that was the Fox News Fox, channel. But yeah. this Jason Rance is a local radio host. So it's really the local radio host. He's not technically a news guy. He's just an opinion guy. But anyway, that is now coming to the fore more since last week. 
I have a extremely exciting update. I registered for the American Federation for Children's National Policy Summit today. It's going to be September 29th and 30th in Milwaukee, which is uh, well known as the home of the first modern day private school voucher program in the U.S., the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, which launched in 1990. It's been around for about three decades now, and I've done a lot of research in this uh, of this program uh, on this program as well. Bob, you go into the AFC Policy Summit. I haven't decided yet, but I'm leaning toward it. And now your endorsement of the event, Corey, <laughs> I think, has uh, affected uh, millions of listeners and uh, viewers of Random Assignment. Absolutely. And if you want to go uh, register, you can do so at federationforchildren.org. Uh, you can look for the National Policy Summit. Yeah. Well, one thing, just as a reminder, too, I was uh, speaking to a group of people last week, and uh, I brought up something we haven't talked about on the show in probably nine months or 10 months or something. But um, I, I brought up a, a part of the Choice Media website, which is uh, sexualabuseinschools.org, where, uh, again, it's a stunning reminder of this crisis, which continues. You, you'd almost think the last year with the pandemic would have created a, a, a pause in this problem. It has not. It is uh, people seeing this list, and there it is right now, people seeing this list of teachers that are arrested and convicted and sentenced for uh, sexual abuse of students, mostly. Uh, I, I think actually that might be 100% of these stories. Uh, people have no idea the scale of this. They have no, they can't believe it. They're, they are, Nonstop. Wait, they are dumbfounded by this uh, this sheer volume of these stories, and so I wanted I just just having presenting that to I presented that to a group of people uh, in a talk last week, and and just seeing the amazement in their faces uh, reminded me to bring it up again on the show. Yeah, go check that out on the ChoiceMedia.tv website. Uh, I, I think that's it for updates I have over the past week. I mean, just keep, uh, for listeners, keep checking it out on Twitter and also at the Educational Freedom Institute website, uh, Active Legislation Map. There's a lot of bills moving. There's expected to be a full House vote, a full Senate vote, sorry, uh, for the proposal in Arkansas, for example. So, so be on the lookout for an update, hopefully a positive uh, results in the Arkansas but, Senate. You know, tomorrow. people may have noticed you're on a better camera all of a sudden, Corey. They may <laughs> think, wow, this is a better shot of Corey than we've, we're used to on random assignment. Yeah. And I've had this camera for a while. It's the Canon M50. But when I first tried to hook this up, you know, I'd be talking and then like a minute later, you'd hear me. It was just totally <laughs> non, it wasn't synced up. Right. And I got some advice from the great Bob Bowden on how to fix that. Uh, it turns it turns out you can't be plugged into the computer from two different you know devices if you want it to sync up. So uh, going forward, we'll we'll have a much clearer picture on my end. And and Bob, didn't you say you had a, a, a better now, camera? You know, too? now that I've now that I've so adroitly advised advised you on improving your camera technology, maybe it's time for me to do it for myself. So the gauntlet has been cast um but anyway so thanks everybody this was random assignment please share like subscribe etc and uh we'll see you next time